Yes, I've learned how to produce old-time radio effects. And that's not the only new thing about this week's podcast. We also have a new theme tune, which I'll play you in just a second. It's been especially composed for us by the composer John Garden. And I asked him not to be shy about including arid sirens. So you'll have guests from the exceptionally well-produced intro there, this week is a further look at Tsar Bomba, the biggest nuclear bomb ever detonated, and this week we're looking at the reaction around the world. So let's ease ourselves into further nuclear horror by listening to our new theme tune. So we're looking at the worldwide reaction to the explosion of Tsar Bomba. We know the Soviets weren't exactly forthcoming with the details. Indeed, it was only in the last few weeks that the Russian authorities released unseen footage of the bomb. So the thing, in typical Soviet style, was done in secrecy. But that raises two problems. One, what was the point of keeping such an explosion such a feat, such an achievement, the possession of such awesome power, a secret. The point of the bomb, and of course the point of nuclear deterrence, is that the enemy has to know about it. They can't be deterred from attacking you, unless they know that you've got the ability to destroy them in turn. Secondly, could the Soviets have kept such a massive explosion secret? Well, no. Not for long. The thing was so gigantic that, as we mentioned last week, it broke windows in other countries. And it sent shockwaves around the world. So, no, you couldn't keep Tsar Bomba a secret for very long. So, when the 
lads at NATO realised what had occurred up there in the Arctic Ocean, what was their reaction? Firstly, we need to recognise that Tsar Bomba was just one nuclear test of many. We tend to think of him as one spectacular event, but he was one of a series. So Tsar Bomba exploded in a world which was already tutting at the Soviets for their resumption of atmospheric nuclear testing. Because from 1958... Tsar Bomba happened in 1961. From 1958, there had been a suspension in atmospheric testing. All until Khrushchev suddenly abandoned that and charged ahead with the series of tests, which includes the big Tsar Bomba. So not only was this bomb gigantic, the biggest the world had ever seen, and it remains the biggest we've ever seen, but it ripped apart the shaky consensus between East and West that we should cam it with atmospheric testing. The United Nations meets in anger and shock on the morning the Russians detonated their super bomb. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson sums up the feelings of 78 nations. As he said he would, Mr. Khrushchev has exploded his giant bomb in cynical disregard of the United Nations. By this act, the Soviet Union have added injury to insult. They broke the moratorium on nuclear weapons testing. They have raised atmospheric pollution to new heights. They have started a new race for more deadly weapons. They have spurned the humanitarian appeal of the United Nations and of all peace-loving people. The Soviets had two main testing sites, the area of Kazakhstan, known as Semipalatinsk, and, of course, the Novaya Zemlya Island in the Arctic Ocean. When smaller countries like Britain or France wanted to test, they had to go elsewhere. Australia, in Britain's case, and Algeria or Polynesia for the French. But the Soviet Union, with its vast territory, could do it within its own borders. With dreadful consequences, of course, for some of the Kazakh people, but that's another topic for another day. So Tsar Bomba, in more ways than one, was an incredible shock to the international community, as he was the biggest and most terrifying of a series of tests which broke the testing moratorium, angered and upset other countries, And yes, if we're placing Tsar Bomba in context, let's remember that he exploded in 1961. Only one year later, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the world arguably came as close as it ever has to nuclear war. When this new range of Soviet tests began, upsetting the West so badly and breaking the moratorium, A US Senator, Hubert Humphrey, said it should be condemned in the United Nations as waging war on humanity. Meanwhile, an American delegation was in Geneva, actually participating in nuclear test ban talks. Yes, they were still there in the city when Khrushchev declared that it was over and they were going ahead with tests. 
quite a slap in the face. The leader of the American delegation packed his bags and flew home to America, where he issued this statement. These events, at this time when the world could have had a workable treaty, show a determined Soviet purpose to rest its future policy on the terrorisation of humanity. Soviet policy is a policy of overkill. But the Soviet government underestimate the people of the world if it thinks they will capitulate to a strategy of blackmail and terror. So that was the reaction to the first Soviet test in 1962, uh, the one which broke the moratorium. Of course, they'd been testing in the 50s, obviously. But this was the one which broke the moratorium and damaged relations between East and West. It took place in Kazakhstan, in the semi-Palatinsk area, And the Times, on 2nd of September 1961, spoke not just of political and military risks, but of the danger of atmospheric tests to people's health. Their diplomatic correspondent said, A foreign office spokesman commenting last night on Russia's action in exploding a nuclear device said, This news is deplorable. These tests take a considerable time to arrange, and the Russians must have been making active preparation while still talking at Geneva on the treaty banning such tests. As the test appears to have been made in the atmosphere and not underground, it also increases by an amount as yet unknown the danger to health from radioactivity. A few days later, on the 18th of September, The Times was reporting on yet another Soviet test, the 13th, and they also had the horrible headline, Sharp Rise in Radioactivity Over Britain. The article says, There seems little doubt that the increase was due to the first Soviet explosion of the present series in the megaton range. It goes on to say, An interval of from 10 days to 3 weeks is expected before fallout from a Soviet explosion reaches Britain. And they were also reporting something which was probably inevitable. The Americans had also resumed nuclear testing. Yes, when Khrushchev abandoned the Geneva talks and said they'd be testing again, Kennedy ordered that America get some tests of their own on the go. Although the American one reported here was at least done underground. Of course, this wasn't just between Soviets and the USA. Finland and Sweden both spoke up, saying they feared contamination if Russia resumed atmospheric testing up in the Arctic seas. The tests done in Kazakhstan are comfortably far away from Europe, but look on Google Maps at Russia's Arctic testing sites, the island of Novaya Zemlya, and you'll see it's horribly close to Finland and Sweden. We'll recall, of course, that Tsar Bomba managed to break windows in Finland, whereas it was the Swedes who first detected the radiation pouring out of the Chernobyl reactor in 1986. So those two countries are very close to Russia when we're discussing nuclear disasters, distress, horror, fallout. Looking again at the papers for September and October 1961, they report another test and another test and another one, The Soviets were really getting back into the swing of things after the moratorium. 
And then, on October 24th, the Times reports that shockwaves were felt in Britain through the air and the ground, and that it's assumed these came from Soviet tests, big Soviet tests. The shocks were felt not only in Britain, but also France, Denmark, Holland, Germany and Norway. And Japan picked up an air shockwave, saying it was stronger than any recorded since the resumption of Soviet testing. All of that, and we haven't even reached the Tsar Bomba yet. These shockwave reports were from the 24th of October. And of course, the big one exploded on the 30th. Still a few days to go. October 28th comes around, two days till Tsar Bomba, and the UN makes an appeal to Russia, please halt these new tests. It was rumoured that a 50 megaton monster was coming, and the UN resolution, passed by 87 votes to 11, asked them to please halt this rumoured 50 meg test. Unsurprisingly, the only countries who voted against the resolution were the Soviet bloc and Cuba. The appeal to the Russians was sponsored by the eight countries who border the USSR. Canada, Denmark, Iceland, Iran, Japan, Norway, Pakistan and Sweden. That happened on the 28th of October, two days before Tsar Bomba. So the big lad explodes on the 30th, 30th of October, and the next day it was the front page news around the world. The New York Times, in their front page story, used words like insane, fright, panic, blackmail. Yet all fears had been confirmed. Khrushchev had dropped hints and suggestions that a big nuclear whopper was coming in this provocative series of tests, and now here it was. Here is a little snippet from the New York Times front page that day. Dismay and outrage spread through much of the world yesterday as the Soviet Union carried out its huge nuclear explosion. Many of the declarations said that, quote, terror weapons would not work as blackmail. The article goes on to quote a politician from Rome who said, this is war, but in a new form. And the article has a very strong point of view from the Vatican, Vatican Radio, saying it was Vatican Radio, however, that probably reflected the feelings of most of mankind outside the communist bloc. The Vatican Radio termed the blast, quote, an insane decision morally, politically, socially, economically and humanely deprecable that shows the true face of communism, a face without the light of love and reflecting the tension of hatred. The West German government said that the Soviet Union was ruthlessly risking the health of all mankind. And the article goes on, the explosion was taken as new proof of Moscow's brutal determination to display its military power. What about Belgium? Well, Brussels newspaper Le Soir said, Mr K has refused to listen to the anguished appeals of humanity. And a member of the parliament in Oslo said the explosion showed a cynicism unparalleled in history. 
Well, I suppose you have to hand it to what the Belgians were calling Mr. K. Because of the purpose of the hydrogen bomb, we've discussed in our previous episode in the, I believe, the creation of the hydrogen bomb, we talked about the debates in America about whether the thing should actually be invented in the first place. And a lot of American nuclear scientists had said no, because it is monstrous, it's a weapon of genocide, and it will be too <laughs> too hideous, too destructive to ever be used. And that argument led to the fact that, well... Maybe it won't be used, but it does still have a purpose, the purpose of which is to deter, because it's so hideous, it's so frightening, it's so destructive, it is a weapon of genocide, as mentioned, but that is what makes it a whopping good deterrent. So the argument might go. And so following that line of logic, Khrushchev had pulled off, Khrushchev had succeeded. Here is a weapon so hideous and so destructive that... One, it's never been surpassed, and two, touch wood, it has never been used. Did it deter successfully? All we can say is yes, because there hasn't been a nuclear war. Again, touch wood. Was it worth angering many of the countries on Earth? Sending a dagger of ice through the Cold War again? Paving the way, perhaps, for the Cuban Missile Crisis? Mr K might have said yes, it was worth it. He got the propaganda victory, he got the awe and fear of most of the world and he can sit back and say well there was no nuclear war, not in my lifetime at least, and so deterrence must have worked of course the other point of view is that deterrence hasn't worked because of one side fearing the other and logically summing up what they might do to us, what we could do to them, is it all worth it, oh god no let's not start a war The other point of view is we have survived thus far due to sheer good luck. And if you scoot back a couple of weeks in my archive and see the podcast about the book The Button, it was an interview with um, William Perry and Tom Kalina. That is their argument in the book The Button. A lot of our survival is down to sheer, flimsy, unpredictable good luck. Not cold, hard logic of deterrence. We've seen how the West and Japan reacted to the blast. Pakistan and Iran were also opposed to it, as we've seen. But what about the Russian people? What was their reaction to it? Well, according to the New York Times, they simply weren't told. The paper reported that Soviet TV and radio were silent on the topic. Not talking about the blast and certainly not talking about the uproar caused throughout the world by Khrushchev's bomb. Instead, the news began to filter into Soviet cities slowly through those who were able to pick up foreign news reports. A few days after the detonation, the Voice of America station said that they would tell the Soviet people that, quote, the testing of nuclear weapons by your government has been taking place under conditions which have exposed you and all who will come after you to grave danger. Have you been told? The Voice of America will ask repeatedly as it bombards the Soviet Union for eight hours with the story of Soviet nuclear testing and pollution of the atmosphere. The article goes on to say, the Soviet people, for the most part, are still in the dark about the nuclear explosions their government has carried out since resuming nuclear testing 
on September the 1st. The Moscow Radio has reported the underground tests conducted by the United States, but has kept silent on the Soviet tests. And what of the Soviet authorities? What did they say to the world? How did they defend their position? Khrushchev said, quite bluntly, we are compelled to answer military threats by strengthening our country's defensive capacity. We have no other alternative. Although the Times reports him in slightly softer tones, saying that Mr Khrushchev states that the Soviet Union decided to begin the tests, quote, only after a great deal of thought and not without heartache, not without a feeling of sorrow, understandable to all who cherish the ideals of ensuring peace between the peoples. The Times quotes Khrushchev here in a letter he sent to some concerned Labour MPs, uh, led by Barbara Castle. They'd written a letter to him through the Soviet embassy and he had replied explaining why they had resumed testing, including the gigantic Tsar Bomba. He says, It goes without saying that we cannot ignore the attempts at intimidation by the NATO powers, but we must say that they are wrongly directed. If the opponents of concluding a peace treaty should wish to fight it by military means, then we must possess no less powerful means of nipping any attempts to unleash war. Referring to the tests, he says, We are carrying out experimental blasts and improving our weapons so that mankind may never experience the horrors of nuclear war. The presence of nuclear weapons in the hands of Soviet power is a stern warning to all who resort to threats over the question of the conclusion of a German peace treaty. The Soviet people and the peoples of the other socialist countries engaged in peaceful, constructive work have no need of war. And he goes on to talk about disarmament, total nuclear disarmament, which I think will never happen. He says it would give us the greatest happiness to sink the most perfected and terrible weapons in the ocean. But if our partners in the negotiations do not want to reach agreement jointly to sink the weapons, then naturally we need them too. We know that it's impossible to beg for peace and tranquility for the people from the aggressors by preaching love and tolerance. We are compelled to answer military threats by strengthening our country's defence capacity. We have no other alternative. He ends by saying, The Soviet government has already declared many times its readiness to sign an agreement on general and complete disarmament with the most stringent international control. We are prepared to do this at once, if you like. And that is why I don't think we'll ever achieve nuclear disarmament. Because it's a case of, will you put down the gun? Well, I will, if you put yours down. Okay, but put yours down. No, 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 you. No, no, you put yours down. No, no, you put yours down first. It's not going to happen. We're stuck with them and we probably deserve it. Afterwards, after Khrushchev had had his tests and exploded his bombs and wrecked the Geneva talks and pranced around and showed off, after all that, the Soviets suggested resuming talks on banning nuclear tests and proposed that everyone head back to Geneva. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and enjoyed the new music. 
It was composed specially for this podcast by the musician John Garden, who has worked with the likes of Alison Moye and Scissor Sisters. He's also agreed to compose a nuclear war-themed ringtone, and this will be available soon on my Patreon page. It will be free to download for everyone who's at the Tsar Bomba level and above. And if you're a current patron at that level, then I will email it to you as soon as it's ready. Patrons who are at that level and above get a range of rewards, such as Atomic Hobo mugs and coasters, uh, copper bookmarks, having their name in the acknowledgement section of my book, uh, a signed copy of the book, uh, getting access to a private Facebook group where I share some of my nuclear archives. So there are lots of nuclear rewards and lots of different levels. So please do consider joining my Patreon, where you can donate some money to the podcast each month. And as I say, you get juicy nuclear rewards in return, as well as the lovely warm satisfaction of knowing you are supporting this podcast and keeping it free of annoying adverts. There will never be adverts on this thing as long as I have my Patreon. So take a look, please, at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me say thank you also to Koala Designs, who created the new podcast logo. You might see that I asked her to take Protect and Survive as her inspiration for it. The reason I got a new logo is because my old one, which had a map of Europe, someone pointed out to me on Twitter that it was a weird wonky map because it had Finland as part of the USSR. And I put this on Twitter and once I'd done so, everyone began digging deep into the map, zooming in on it and saying, what on earth is this thing? Because it had lots of weird crazy countries that didn't really properly exist and I had, as I say, poor Finland lumped in with the Soviet Union so that had to go and Koala Designs within a week got me my new Protect and Survive inspired logo and before I go, please let me thank some of my patrons. This week it's a special shout out for Tamsin Cater who increased her monthly donation so thank you Tamsin and thank you also to Lissy D, Eric, Simon Robinson and Dan Breen Thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week. And let me end the podcast with another taste of that lovely new theme music we have.